Jeannie Bond has come to the antidote for a chat. Thanks for being such a willing victim, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> a victim? <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be a victim here. <laughs> oh, it just depends on how this talk goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, tonight's talk is a bit of a change for this program, since we usually look at music direct from the artist. This is different because you have a record label, Key Records, with a catalog of retro releases. That kind of music must have a personal appeal for you. Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, uh, most of this stuff is uh, Mark Krischak related, which uh, he was you know, a founding member of The Lifesavers. And they put out an album in 1981, the first Christian pop punk ever. So, uh, you know, that's kind of what got me hooked. So uh, I went from there. I actually started the label, and I, the first thing I put out was a, was a flexi disc. And it was a clear plastic flexi disc that you could get uh, made at, you know, at Evatone. Uh, Evatone made all kinds of plastic records for every kind of thing you can imagine. So uh, that was the cheapest way to make vinyl back then. Yeah, that's how I got started. But before that, I actually had a catalog. Uh, I was doing distribution of all these little cassette demos and stuff. So that's uh, how it got really started. Then I started, you know, doing, you know, stuff on my own label. So that's kind of how I got started. Key Records couldn't have been a money-making thing. So why in the world would you start a label? Well, uh, there were so many zines, so many artists, you know, doing little cassettes, you know, their own thing. And, you know, nobody had put it in one place. You know, it was just kind of out there, scattered around. It was like, you know, scattered few. I don't know if you're familiar with a band, but everybody was scattered. So I just kind of took everything and put it together in one thing. Anybody who, you know, would say yes. You know, would you sell your stuff on consignment or would you, you know, sell me five cassettes or whatever? So that's kind of how I got started that way. And how did you connect with the artists who put out music through Key Records? Well, um, the, all the zines. There were so many little zines back then, and they were reviewing, you know, like The Crucified and, you know, Scattered Fuse demos and stuff like that. Um, there were just so many zines, and that's how I got connected with it all, through the zines, really. I guess I should have pointed out that the artists on Key Records really are considered part of the Christian underground music scene. But realistically, wouldn't most of the Christian music of the early to mid-80s be considered underground? Most of it, except for like Steve Taylor, Daniel Amos, you know, the choir, the altar boys, anything that you could buy in a store, you know, the mom and pop, you know, Bible bookstores, you could buy that kind of stuff in there. But everything else that had that pop punk, the, the just, just the alternative stuff, there was no other place to get it. You know, it was kind of just a grassroots thing just came up. Yeah, because I guess that was really the beginnings or the early stages of the mainstream Christian music scene. Yeah, we had artists like that, artists like DeGarmo and Key and Randy Stonehill, the Res Band and Michael W. Smith. They were all recording during that era. The bands that you had on your label were in the underground, but were any of them wanting to sort of cross over, or they were they content where they were? Uh, I think most were content where they were. They didn't think they'd ever get into a store, you know, because just the, the kind of music they were playing and, you know, the attitudes. You know, they weren't on board with the, you know, the total Christian music scene. And, you know, a lot of people wouldn't let them play in the churches. We discussed that how 
you don't fit here, you don't fit there, so nobody wants you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was the one that, you know, I was the one that was like, okay, I want you. I'll start distribution and we'll get this thing going. And none of them really broke out into the mainstream. I would I would say none did. No, I mean, the Crucified was one of the, but I don't I don't think I ever connected with the Crucified to get them on my, you know, in, in distribution because they were on their way. That is the only one I can kind of think of that really made it kind of big. Um, well, Scattered Few, because they were on their way, too. There was a big scene in Southern California. There were concerts, there were zines, everything was going on out there. Um, and you were far away from that because you were on the opposite side of the country. Exactly. So, yeah. And Scattered Few, the name of that band, really described us because we were scattered all over the country. There might have been nobody within a hundred miles that was listening to the same kind of music or reading the same zines. Scattered Few, though, the band, that was really like a cult favorite. I mean, even is now. Right, true. But, uh, you know, they did get on major labels like The Crucified did. Major, you know, not like Benson or, you know, Word. You know, more of a sort of the mid-level, I'd say, uh, labels. The artists that you have on the label, it goes everything, like garage rock, uh, techno-industrial, Europop, pop-punk, indie, goth. You had the Mm -hmm. whole gamut. This is true. You know, while most labels tend to focus on a certain style, I guess it was really because of the era, right? You just had to cover everything. Yeah, you did. I mean, you know, if they were out there doing stuff and I thought they were good enough, you know, they were like, okay, everybody else should know about this band. Everybody should know about the Lifesavers. Everybody should know about Labor of Love because they were just good. And, you know, nobody was giving them a chance kind of thing. So that's what I did. Well, I guess there is one person in common to most of the music on Key Records. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's Mark Krischak. Of Lifesavers. You have to be honest here. Were you actually doing all this record label stuff just because you were an obsessed fan? <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, he was the one that, you know, he's one of the ones that said yes. You know, I was like, can I put this on my label? Yes. Can I put this on my label? Yes. So, yeah, like he said yes, you know. And a lot of times you'd, you'd contact other people and, they, you know, you'd never hear from them again. So, um, he's the one of the ones. And he had so many. He had like, I don't know how many, a hundred releases or something like that. So, I just uh, went through his catalog and picked a few, you know, the best. You know, like the Coolers, Louvre. Uh, lifesavers you know he was he had it going on big time with with some of these bands i suppose that really lifesavers you would have to consider that to be the most major artist that you had on the label yes yes definitely um you know they were on another label obviously they came out with a you know an lp in 1981 and um it kind of disappeared you know like a few years later you know you couldn't get it so, I, you know, I got permission from Mark and uh, just went with it. I was just going to say, you know, it is the, you know, it's the most interest I have is from that because people want the LP again, so. Well, what about filling us in about the band, about Lifesavers? Well, uh, it got started. Mark Krischak started the band. You know, Mike Knott was in the band. Um, and uh, he left to, it, there was a lot of really, you know, how, you know, band members can be, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like there was a lot of tension in the group and a lot of back and forth. And, you know, this person took, you know, the name of the band. And, you know, it was one of those things where it didn't end well. 
you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Mark, he was the founder of behind this whole deal. Uh, somebody described him as he had a ministry of starting bands. He would start bands and then, you know, they'd go for six months or so and he'd like start another band. So he was not really into the whole rock star thing because he had actually, before he became a Christian, he was in a group called the Popsicles, which was in the late 70s in Southern California. It was kind of like a Tiger B type of <laughs> band. Yeah, that's and embarrassing. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's all on YouTube. So. <laughs> uh, so he had gone through that, that whole star thing. And so he, he was just like, let's just have some fun. Let's, you know, start a band. Let's, you know, play a few shows. And then let's go to the next band. That's why you see so many bands that he is behind. You spoke about Mike Knott. Well, of course, right. he's gone on to be considered one of the, I don't know, most influential artists, I guess you could say. Yeah. You know, had mm-hmm. bands like Aunt Betty's and Cush stuff that I just adored. Right. And, of course, a ton of solo stuff. Yeah, he was just one of the players in the band when Lifesavers began. Right. He was just a member of the band. You know, great talent, obviously, because he went on to do so many you know other things. But back then, he was just, you know, one of the guys in the band. I'd read a story somewhere that some festival or some show, and they didn't want the band to play because Mike Knott would dance on stage. Can you imagine <laughs> how horrifying that is? We're talking oh like gosh. the ultra straight lace Christians. Right, right. You know, um, it might lead to dancing. Oh, my gosh, you know. That's a sin. (laughs) Yeah, total sin. So, yeah, you know, he was pretty, I guess you could say he was kind of like, you know, he was out there. He was, you know, he didn't care. And he was just doing his thing. And uh, there was a lot of different incarnations of that band. Some toured with different members. There was another incarnation of the band. There was a lot of interest in that band, and that's why they tried to keep it going. And they tried to keep it going, and it, it wasn't the same members, you know, kind of thing. No, it seemed to be that yeah. all of the releases were all so different from each other. Yes. And especially yeah. when they morphed into LSU, which was completely different style. Yeah, that was basically, you know, Mike Knott's taking that and where he wanted to go. Because Mark didn't have anything to do with the band after, like, the first release, us kids. Mark Krischak must have had a really diverse range of tastes because his stuff ranged all over the place. Mm-hmm. Each band was quite different from each other. Yeah, they were. You know, he just wanted to try different stuff. You know, for example, Louvre is way different than the Lifesavers. You know, Labor of Love, very poppy band. Then when he went, oh, the Coolers. I mean, what an awesome band. You know, all kinds of underground stuff that he was doing. And that was really just how artists had to progress at that point in the Christian music industry. Things were just still in the infancy at that point. That was sort of really the beginning of the era of CCM, of all that tripe Christian music slop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the only way I could refer to it. Yeah. It was pretty just, lame. Yeah, it was really bad. I mean, there, like I said, there was Steve Taylor, there was Daniel Amos, you know, there were the choir, the altar boys. I'm probably missing a couple others. But those were, like, that's what you could buy in the store. That's not enough. Four bands? <laughs> yeah, four bands that were actually doing significant music. That's what you're saying. Because yes. the CCM stuff that was coming around that time period was really negligible artistically. Yeah. I've been listening to a couple of brilliant tracks from Endless Frontier 
by Simple Plan. That stands out because there really wasn't much in the Christian scene with this techno-industrial sound. Right, there wasn't. I mean, uh, like that Children of Power, you know, almost the only goth that was out there at the time. That was like 1991. There's no other Christian stuff going on like that. I had one of their cassettes in my catalog towards the very, you know, early 90s. That's kind of what interests me. It's like, okay, is there anything out there like this? You know? No, there isn't. So let's put it out there. You know, Chris Jack stuff. Um, there was this, uh, and then also um, New Society. You know, there, wasn't, there weren't many bands doing that kind of stuff. They had so many releases. There was a lot of cool things, you know, on their uh, little cassettes. And so I just took, you know, what I liked from each one and put together a compilation. And that's what it's, uh, that's what the new society, the one I have on my label. So, you know, there was just, it was in its infancy, you know. Now you can get anything you want. We were starving for decent music. And so we had to just kind of make our own scene. And a lot of that music was pretty rudimentary. I mean, nowadays, just about anybody can record a basic song on a home computer. Mm -hmm. Some of the music on Key Records, I mean, it sounds pretty rough, like the band Labor of Love. I mean, so how were these artists actually making the recordings? (laughs) Um, Well, one of the members of Mark's bands, his name is Jerry Andrews, and he was like only 14 at the time. And they were making, you know, overdubs with boomboxes, basically. <laughs> I mean, truly. He sent me an email recently and explained how, how he did it. And, uh, you know, he's just started doing that with different bands. And so, you know, it worked, I guess, because, you know, everybody was sending out demos and stuff. And he worked with a lot of bands. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, they were recorded in, like, people's living rooms. You know, there was no such thing as paying for a studio. So, yeah, that's how it was done. There's so much of other music that I don't, you know, carry in my catalog. There's just so much that was done with four tracks. I can think of ones called Crazed Bunnies um, that they did a lot of techno kind of comedy stuff. We got to talk about Crazed Bunnies. (laughs) I mean, what a riotous name. That's that's got to be one of the most bizarre that I've ever heard. Yeah. There's stuff that's crappy quality. But yeah. the music yeah. is great. So, okay, what do you know about these guys? Oh, well, um, there's three guys, and uh, one of the guys, Mark Plangay, he's with DAS, Dead Artist Syndrome. Oh, yeah. And the other guy, uh, Mike Futch, is, he is now Bing Futch, and he's into dulcimer uh, music. Wow. And then Plangay was also Gadget. Uh, that was his moniker. He was Gadget, and uh, he, he did a lot of techno-industrial type of stuff. So, I mean... That's just one of the bands like that. So, <laughs> there's a lot more. I want to get back to something that you brought up earlier about the distribution. So you're distributing how? Through ads in the zines that you were part of? That's right. That's wow. right. It was, all, it was all like a little scene that we, you know, there were zines. There were a few radio shows, like college radio shows. Um, that these um, bands were getting on a few, you know, um, you know, that were the ones that would play cassettes. <laughs> um, for example, in the 90s, I was doing um, some local radio and I got, you know, a few of these things on there. You know, there was a lot of resistance to it. So, you know, they got out there a little. And also I did these um, I did these radio shows on cassettes that I sent like all around the world. Um, what I would do is I would, you know, do a fake radio show, put it on a cassette 
make copies, you know, one at a time. I made seven of them and sent them all around the world. And, and that's how a lot of the bands got uh, popular. And because, you know, obviously people were making copies of the copies I sent them. You know, who knows how many generations, you know, copies were made. I ran into a guy at Cornerstone that um, he had one of my cassettes in his car. You know, he had listened to it on the way there. So, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. That's when you knew that you were famous. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, that's how uh, people heard. You know, if they weren't, like, listening to a college radio station, you know, had a Christian show on, that was the only way that was going to be done. Putting all these bands into, you know, into a show. And I think that's kind of what I was trying to do is, like, there's all these separate things out there. Just bring them together. Put them on one thing. Get distribution in one place or, you know, one or two, three places, whatever. But, you know, that's kind of what I tried to do is bring this whole thing together. Now, you mentioned about how when you were going to do this on the radio, that it wasn't being accepted. How come? No. Well, first, first of all, you know, the quality of the recordings. I can understand that. You know, the quality was pretty low. And, you know, a lot of these uh, shows were done by people that were in churches, and the churches didn't want this or that kind of music played. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Black House, but... Yeah. A church is not going to want to have that played on a station that they're, you know, affiliated with. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not going to happen. So, yeah, there was a lot of resistance to it. And even I was at a concert in Orlando where Steve Taylor was asked to leave the stage in 1984. Oh, boy. So, because oh, his, his music was too radical. And that, to me, was like, okay, I'm going to rush out and get this guy's album. If they asked him to leave the stage, then that's, that's going to make me go buy his record. <laughs> I brought that up in a talk that I had with him one time, and I said, weren't you really just a rebel with a cause? Yeah. He was definitely willing to step on people's toes and uh, mm -hmm. switch away from that structured Christian mindset. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of up against the same thing he was up against, obviously, you know, in a tiny scale. But the same thing was happening to us. Don't play that music. You're giving us a history lesson here. So take us way, way back. Who was the first underground artist that really made an impact on you? It was probably the Coolers. Uh, one of Mark's bands, uh, you know, obviously the first thing I put out was the Coolers, a couple of songs from them. So, yeah, they're just like the raw energy. They're not even playing in front of an audience. They're just playing it, you know, in, in somebody's bedroom. And just the energy that they had was just unbelievable. And just the absolute coolness of the songs. That's what got us started. You know how they talk about everything old is new again? Right. That's happening with Key Records because you have so much of this stuff on cassette. And now cassettes are the trendy thing. Don't oh, you yeah. feel nice to be cutting edge? Oh, yeah. Those <laughs> <laughs> <I was> things. <laughs> they were, you know, they were, we called it the cassette revolution. Because it was kind of people power. Um, I could make a radio show and put it on cassette and make copies and send it around the world. Whereas five years earlier, you couldn't do that. And then, you know, obviously copy machines, all those zines were made at copy shops. You know, they were, you know, there were a few, you know, newsprint ones that, you know, were professionally printed or whatever. But most of them were just, you know, copy shops. So it was really an exciting time because... It gave you power to start a, a, a scene. You could start something. You could get something going with zines, with, with cassettes. 
you could do something you, without, you know, official authority, you know, gatekeepers keeping you out. We just created our own scene, our own distribution, our own zines, our own everything. And of course, now that field has opened up a thousandfold with the internet and just right. anybody can do a song. You can yes. do it. You can have it up online, everybody to hear as soon as you want it to be. And the quality is way better. Yeah, some of it is so well done. But for us in the 80s, this was a new thing. You know, that kind of freedom and the freedom to create stuff and to, to distribute it was a new thing. It was a really cool time. And really, I'm still discovering bands from that time period. I'm still discovering bands that, you know, did, that had demos that I didn't know about. You know, there's, and it's, it's just expanding. I mean, I, obviously, there's a limit to what was produced back then, but still discovering new stuff. So many bands felt so isolated because there was no music community for them doing alternative Christian music. They felt they were right. just shouting to the trees. Mm-hmm. Until, you know, we kind of got together and got, you know, a scene going. Then they could feel part of something, you know. And then, you know, obviously Cornerstone was a big part of bringing people together like that. With all the stages, you know, that would play these bands. You know, it was a big meeting place, too, for everybody to actually meet in person. Yeah, I go to the reincarnation of that with audio feed each year. Right, right. Because that's the kind of people I want to talk to. All these artists that we've been talking about really were considered to be on the fringe of Christian music, but what about you personally, Jeannie? Are mm-hmm. you still living on the fringe? <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty much never living on the fringe, I don't think. Um, if you saw me, like I'm just like a completely normal-looking person that don't, you know, have any piercings or hair or anything like that. <laughs> so, you know, I was never really living on the fringe, you know? So, um I just kind of like a normal person in a scene that was like just appealed to me because of the hypocrisy I'd seen before. And I was like, this is the kind of people I want to be associated with. These are the kinds of Christians that I can talk to and get along with. I like the fringe, <laughs> but I wouldn't describe myself as fringe. I realized that we never spoke about how to find the music that we're talking about. How did they find your website? Uh, it's geniebond.com. It's J-E-A-N-I-B-O-N-D.com. From there, you can um, you can go check out my archives. Like I have scans of all of the cassettes back then. Um, I have the old radio shows I mentioned. Um, you know, obviously, you can buy some uh, the Chris Jack music and the other stuff. And then you can listen to a couple of radio shows, some newer shows that I've done. So, how oh, cool. Jeannie, this has been a great talk. Thanks so much right. for coming on The Antidote. All right, Dave, it's great meeting you and talking to you, and I hope we'll connect again sometime soon. <laughs>